Reading from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servants fell on his knees, imploring him, having patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So I guess, first of all, we are not in the Gospel of John this morning, as you may have noticed. Um, I had the privilege of speaking at a senior's home in Calgary earlier in the week, and that was very unexpected. Somebody else was sick, so they called me in as the B team to be a replacement, and I didn't have a lot of time to pull something together, so I came up with this, which is based on material that I have preached before. I don't think I did this here. Um, Pastor Matt did. And some of you will remember that sermon forever. He talked about a, a Googleplex um, as the number of the debt that this man owed. And I'm not sure entirely. That may have been the time he locked himself out of the building. But we'll leave that um, where, where it should stay in the past, except for when I want to torment Pastor Matt, who is a friend and a brother, and I love him dearly. And I have been so blessed by being able to work with him over the years since um, I have been here in Classes, Alberta, South Saskatchewan. So I pulled this sermon out, and it goes without saying, I think. Um, I have another pastor friend sitting over in the back corner there. And I think you would agree with me on this. You can ask him if you want during the coffee time. Um, his name is Mac, by the way. And uh, whenever we sit down to put a sermon together, our first congregation is always ourselves. So we try to preach the word to others, but before we're able to stand up and do that, we hear the word, and it speaks into our own lives and molds and shapes us by the will of God. And, and that certainly was happening when I preached this sermon on Wednesday, and so I came away from that thinking that would go so well with a communion service, and there's nothing that keeps us chained to the Gospel of John, so I'm just going to bring this to you this morning, and I trust that this is the word 
that God's Holy Spirit has for us. So looking at Matthew 18, we're talking about forgiveness, but forgiveness is all about grace. I remember in the course of the examinations that I had to endure, is that too strong a word, in the process of becoming a pastor in the Christian Reformed Church, along the way I was asked a lot of interesting and challenging questions. But there's only one that I will never, ever forget. Um, one of the synodical deputies, Jack Gray, stood up at the end of the examination when all the other questions were done, and the chairman said, do the synodical deputies have any questions? And Jack Gray stood up, and he said, could you please summarize for me the Christian faith in a single word, which is kind of a tall order. It's not an easy thing to do. And especially for me, I'm a, I'm a word person. You all know that about me by now. And there were a lot of words that started to run through my head as a response to his questions, words with deep theological meaning, words like redemption, sovereignty, covenant, I thought about the five solas in that moment, but I couldn't think of how to say grace alone in one word or faith alone in one word. And I thought about the five points of Calvinism, those five heads of doctrine that we embrace as part of the canons of Dort in our three forms of unity. And they're so critical to a reformed understanding of Scripture. But as all of those words were sort of echoing around in my mind, one word rose to the surface demanding to be spoken, and that word was grace. I finally settled on, okay, if I had to sort of get at the essence of Christianity in a single word, I think it would have to be grace. And that's why I'm here speaking to you this morning about grace, and that's what a sermon on forgiveness is really about. And it's not that those other things aren't important, they certainly are. Um, we can't just say, okay, grace, just grace. Everything else is secondary. We'll just leave that all aside. No, all of those other things are important. It's just that without grace, all of those other words and ideas very quickly either lose their meaning or they take on a meaning completely different from what they ought to have for us when we understand them in the context of Scripture. The idea of redemption apart from grace shrinks to simply keeping accounts, balancing scales with God. And if we think we can do that ourselves, we need to think again. But even if we think that that's really all that's going on when Christ pays the penalty for our sins, we're missing something. Sovereignty without grace is another word for tyranny. And God just becomes nothing more than a kind of cosmic puppet master. Even the idea of covenant, and those of you who know me know that this is one of those words that I hold really close. I have a book about covenant, and one time somebody asked me if you had to be stranded on a desert island, you could only have two books, the Bible and one other, which would it be? And I said it would be this book about covenant. Because without an understanding of covenant, it's really hard to understand the scriptures. And so, yes, it's important, but without the idea of grace, again, even the idea of covenant or testament becomes really just a matter of law. Covenant becomes the big stick with which God beats us. And indeed, in this very often graceless age, this is exactly what some of these beautiful theological truths have become. 
we've lost the wonder of grace experienced by the author of the hymn who wrote, Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. When I say that word, and I probably say it at least once every week from the pulpit here, is that, what, is that where your mind goes? Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Grace that exceeds our sin and our shame. I think we've lost something of that. I think we've lost something of the understanding of John Newton, that notorious prodigal, who, when he returned to the Father, stood in awe before the throne of God and penned amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We've institutionalized the grace of God. We've reduced the majesty of grace to a religious buzzword, just jargon. We've limited the application of grace to some spiritual sense that never really connects to our real lives. So we just live in this world like everyone else, and we think once in a while, maybe once every Sunday or every couple of Sundays, about the grace of God but we don't understand how that connects to the lives that we are living Monday to Saturday and the rest of the day on Sunday out in what some people would call the real world. We've forgotten, I think, that at the bottom line, being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, being in Christ is all and always about grace. And maybe we've stumbled into the trap described by Jesus in the story that we read just a few minutes ago. See, in that parable, the servant or steward of a great king owed an unimaginable debt to his master, a debt that he could never afford to repay. And I'm not going to try to get into exactly how big this debt is, because Pastor Matt did such a good job of that already. No one will ever forget it. He showed you know, what a Googleplex, a one with, I forget how many thousands of zeros after it is. The fact of the matter is this man owed a debt to his master that he could not repay, not in his lifetime, not in a hundred lifetimes. There was nothing he could do. He stood before his master, and his master is calling in the loan, and he cannot even come close to repaying it. So there's nothing left for him except to throw himself on the mercy of the court where his debt is exposed for what it really is. And in verse, chapter, or in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 18, is that on preview again? Edit up at the top there. Never mind, I don't need it. We'll do without. It's okay. Verse 25 of Matthew 18, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And even in those days, the sale of this man and his wife and his children and everything that he owned was not going to come close to touching that debt. It would destroy the man's life and it would mean very little to the master in the long run. And when the servant realizes what's about to happen, that overwhelming sense of despair that he feels as his life is about to be stripped away from him causes him to fall on his knees and beg 
And what he begs for is grace, at least a kind of grace, what lenders today might call a grace period, when you owe them $500 and you only have $450, and you, so you, could you just give me a little grace period and I'll throw that extra 50 on with my payment next month. Have patience with me, he said, and I will pay you everything. Of course, given the magnitude of the debt, the king realized that he could give this man a lifetime and he would never be able to repay everything. So the master responds, not with more credit, not with a grace period, as it were, but with genuine grace. Jesus tells us, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. No reason given other than pity. No reason given other than the compassion of the master. There was nothing in it for him. All he stood to do was to gain nothing and to lose what amounts to a small fortune. The servant gained, the master lost, the master paid. And truly, this is the wonder of grace. Grace must simply be received. It's not deserved. If we think we deserve grace, we don't understand grace. It cannot be earned. It cannot be bought. If it's something that we can buy or earn through our merit, our works, or whatever it may be, it's not grace. For grace to be grace, for grace to be God's matchless, infinite, marvelous grace, it must simply be received. There's nothing more that we can do than to receive it with a believing heart. We stand broke and bankrupt before the throne of a holy God, owing a debt that we cannot repay in a thousand lifetimes. We think about that debt as our Heidelberg Catechism does. What God requires of us throughout our lives is complete perfection. So if we mess up, we sin, we break God's law, we can't make up for that debt by doing a good work on the other side of the balance sheet because the good work that's on the other side is something that we already owe to him. There is no sense in which we can do good works to balance out the bad, the sin that we have committed. We are broke. We are bankrupt. There is nothing that we can do. We owe God for the blood of his own son shed for the forgiveness of our sin. And feebly we cry out, but sometimes I think we don't even know what to ask. Give us more credit. I think when I was a child, I know... When I was a child, there were those times where I would think of God's will for my life and I would recognize I have sinned to my own grievous fault in my thoughts and in my words and in the deeds that I have done. And I would come to God and say, oh God, just you know, forgive me one more time. I promise I'll never ever do that again, which of course is a ridiculous promise. No one can make it. No one can keep it. No one short of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to God and we bargain and we beg and we ask, give me more time, give me one more opportunity, one more chance, and I will repay you all that I owe. And we know that God is under no obligation to do any of this, but at the same time, we can look at the world around us and we can think, well, yeah, I have sinned, but I'm no Vladimir Putin, for heaven's sake. If God would just be reasonable, 
But God is not reasonable. Not like that. Not in that sense. He knows better than we do that it doesn't matter if you are Vladimir Putin or a serial killer or Mother Teresa on the other end of some spectrum, that you still owe a debt that you can never personally repay. The king, God, is well aware of the fact that he can extend more and more and more and more credit to the steward, and all that's going to happen is that hole is just going to get deeper and deeper. Having said that, the king is also merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so he says to his servants, as the king in the parable said to his servant, never mind, it's okay, you don't need more time, I will pay the debt myself, I will take the loss, you are free. And we read in Ephesians chapter 2 exactly how he did that, but God, being rich in mercy, God having pity on those who turn to him because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Dead people don't pay debts. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. The parable falls way short of what God has actually done for all of his people. In the parable, the king just told the man, go your way, I release you, you don't owe me anything, and so he went on his way. But when God says that to his people in Christ, he not only pays the debt, he makes us alive from the dead, and he raises us up with Jesus and he seats us with him in heavenly places so that he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And so far, so good. We would imagine, having heard that, that the servant in the story and we ourselves would go on our way singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wouldn't you think? That's what that servant would do, having been forgiven so much by his master. The thing is, and I believe this is the point of the story, the servant didn't get it. His master had set him free. The debt had been paid. It had been erased. Grace had been extended. There was nothing for that servant to do anymore except to receive the mercy of his master with a believing heart, and all would be well, but he won't do that. He's been offered so much more than he could ever have asked for or even imagined, but I think he still thinks in his own heart, just the way Jesus presents this story, I think he thinks in his own heart, I've got a reprieve, just like I asked for. Now, if I can just get all of the stuff that other people owe to me, then I can also pay back the master and I will have not grace, not forgiveness, but righteousness on my own terms. So he goes out and he encounters one of his fellow servants, this man who owes him a significant debt, and that's important. The first servant, the unforgiving servant, as we know him in this parable, owes his master a debt of a bazillion dollars or 
something along those lines, a debt that he can never repay. This servant owes him not five bucks or 10 or 20. He owes him about three or four months' wages. So a significant amount. He has put himself in debt to this other person, and he too is not able to repay it. In a scene that plays out in a way that's just eerily reminiscent of what we read before, the unforgiving servant goes to another servant and he says, pay back what you owe me. And because the other servant is not able to do that, he falls to his knees and he begs him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Now this guy actually had a chance if he was frugal and judicious and budgeted well, he had some hope of being able to pay back three or four months' wages to this man. But at that time, his, his, this unforgiving servant just refuses. And he goes off and he has this man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. It's, it's an interesting sort of economic conundrum, isn't it? You owe me money... I want you thrown into prison until, you know, where you can't work or earn anything until you can pay me that money. And that's what this guy wanted to do because he didn't understand what had been done for him. There are other servants in this story too, and they go to the master and call attention to what had just happened. And then the master calls for this first steward once more. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And maybe that part resonates with us a little bit. Everyone likes to see justice done. Usually we like to see justice for other people. We want to see mercy for ourselves. But Jesus goes on to say, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. See, grace simply received, that's the only way that we can get it, must simply be reflected. We're like mirrors in this case. What we reflect to the world, what we reflect to others is what is shining in us. And so if it is the grace of God in the face of Christ that is shining in us, that's what's going to be reflected back to the world and the people around us. We who have stood broke and bankrupt before the throne of grace, we who have seen the Master take pity, forgive everything and set us free. We're going to come here to this table in a few minutes. And as I do every month, I'm going to say, take the bread and eat, remember and believe that all of our sins are completely forgiven for the sake of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's what grace does. And we have experienced that grace in Christ. So we don't have the option of refusing to extend that same grace to others. We don't have the luxury of holding our fellow servants accountable for the wrongs that they have done to us. When God has said, I won't hold you accountable for the wrong that you have done to me. And this is serious stuff. You may remember that when David 
sinned with Bathsheba, committing adultery and then having her husband murdered. In Psalm 51, when he confesses that sin, he says, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He recognizes that even the nature of the sins that we commit against one another, as heinous as they are, really is still just sinning against God who tells us not to do that. We cannot receive the grace of God on the one hand and then with the other hand try to inflict vengeance in anger and bitterness and wrath on other people. The Apostle Paul put it this way in the book of Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That just convicts me to the bone when I read it. As the Lord has forgiven you, what has the Lord forgiven me? Well, I have to offer that same grace to others. In fact, this graceful living is so central to the message of the gospel that ungrace, gracelessness, unforgiveness seems to be the one sin that gets singled out a couple of times that God himself will not forgive. We have the Ten Commandments. We used to read them a lot. In Reformed churches, there's nowhere in Scripture where God says, if you have another God before me, I will never forgive you. If you take my name in vain, I will never forgive you. If you commit adultery or if you steal or if you covet, I will never forgive you. There's nowhere in Scripture where he says that. What he does say, and Jesus teaches this in that prayer that we use from time to time, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And, and really, in, in the text, the prayer breaks there. The rest comes up in a few other manuscripts. But Jesus teaches them to pray that. And then he breaks and he gives a little commentary on it. And he says, For if you do not forgive men when they sin against you, my Father in heaven will not forgive you. When the Master calls the unforgiving servant back in, and confronts him with this reality that although he had been forgiven so much, he refused to forgive a much smaller amount. He has him thrown into prison until he should pay all his debt, something that he would never be able to do in all of his life. And Jesus went on to make the same point that he made in the prayer, so as also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Philip Yancey wrote about this in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He related a story of some peacemakers who went to uh, Poland from Germany in the years just after World War II. And that was kind of a bold thing to do. And they went and they met with some Polish Christians. And they asked these Polish Christians, would you be willing to meet with other Christians from West Germany? They want to speak to you. They, they even want to ask forgiveness for what Germany did to Poland during the war and to begin to build a new relationship. And at first there was silence. 
And then one of the Polish Christians spoke up and he said, what you're asking is completely impossible. Every stone of Warsaw is soaked with Polish blood because of what the Germans did, and many of them claim to be Christians. We cannot forgive. So recognizing that it seemed like kind of a lost cause, or maybe these two peacemakers were more clever than we give them credit for, they said, okay, we'll drop it. But before we go, can we at least pray the Lord's Prayer together? And they said, yeah, okay. It's the least we can do. So they began to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as... And they just trailed off. Because here they were saying, on the one hand, we can never forgive. Every stone of Warsaw is soaked in blood because of what those Germans did. And yet they're praying this prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then the one who had spoken so vehemently said, I must say yes to you. I must meet with these other Christians. I could no longer pray the Our Father, and I could no longer call myself a Christian if I refuse to forgive. And here's the key. Humanly speaking, I cannot do it but God will give us his strength. The grace that we receive in Christ by which our sins are completely forgiven also equips and empowers us. It reflects from us. We cannot forgive people in this way, but God already has, and in the grace of Christ, then, we can too. Eighteen months later, just to give you the rest of the story, the Polish and West Germans met in Vienna and they established friendships that continued for a long time thereafter. And this is the reality with which we too must reckon. How many times do we pray the Lord's Prayer and we ask our Father in heaven to forgive our sins or debts or trespasses, as the case may be. But we just ask that and then we breeze through that next clause as if it wasn't even there. But Jesus didn't teach us, forgive us our sins, period. He taught us, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Heidelberg Catechism explains Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, means because of Christ's blood. Do not hold against us, poor sinners, that we are any of the sins we do or the evil that, we con that constantly clings to us. Forgive us, just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive our neighbors. I'm not sure exactly when, I think it was a long time ago, I remember reading a story about a little girl in Sunday school who was trying to memorize the Lord's Prayer, and when she got up to pray it, to repeat it, she was doing pretty good until she came to that part, and then she prayed, forgive us our trash baskets, 
as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. And maybe she was onto something, really. The grace of God, true grace must also be truly reflected. And that's what God's grace is. That's what God's grace does. It imparts to us, first of all, the forgiveness that Christ earned for us by offering up his body and blood. And then by the Spirit of God, it empowers us to forgive from the heart all those who put trash in our baskets. Just as God has given us complete forgiveness for all our sin, all that trash and filth in our own life, I, I just have to. There was a man who's talking in an apologetics course, and he had grown up an atheist. He became a Christian, and he went home, and he shared this with his mother, and his mother said, I can't believe it. You've been brainwashed. He said, Mom, if you knew what was in my brain before, you'd be happy that it was washed. And all that garbage, all that filth, all that sin, all that unrighteousness and iniquity that was there when we were dead in our trespasses and sins has been completely forgiven in the grace of Christ through the blood that he shed on the cross. Even so, this morning, may the forgiveness that we have received in his grace that is symbolized for us here at this table May that be the forgiveness that by that same grace we reflect to others. So that in the grace of Christ, as we pray, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, we can have the assurance that Christ, by his death, has taken away our sin, the cause of our eternal death, and has obtained for us the life-giving spirit and that in him we shall stand forgiven.